Ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the first ever Advisory Opinions podcast entirely about meat. So, Sarah, how on earth can we have an entire podcast entirely about meat? Well, I think this is going to surprise some of our listeners, though not if they think about it, because this podcast is actually in some ways going to be about the opposite of meat, and in some ways not at all about the opposite of meat. And for someone who named their in utero baby the brisket, it may seem strange to people that I want to talk about meat alternatives or cultivated meat, but I know we all have sort of versions of our single self. My single self is a vegetarian slash maybe even a vegan in terms of what I eat when Scott is gone. Um, and so I've always been really, really interested in, uh, yeah, our, our meat alternatives. And so I have found us a very special guest for this topic, founder and chief executive officer of the Good Food Institute. He has a very short and very worthwhile TED Talk that we'll put in the show notes that's worth watching as well. So we're going to do the very long, extended version of that TED Talk in some ways with Bruce Friedrich. Bruce, thanks for joining us. I am delighted to be here, Sarah. Thank you so much to you and David for having me. So I think when most people think of meat alternatives, they are thinking of tofu, um, they're thinking of mushroom burgers, things like this, that maybe some of them don't like. Black bean burgers. I, I, all of college ate black bean burgers with mustard just by themselves. Kind of disgusting, actually. But you can live on it, as I proved. I am still alive. But there's <laughs> right. a fascinating new field of cultivated meat. And I don't know anything about it. I've never gotten to try it. And I wanted to bring you on to tell me everything, explain from the bottom up what cultivated meat is. And of course, in order to explain what cultivated meat is, you also need to explain the why. So take it away, Bruce. Talk to me about <laughs> uh, meat breweries. So the way that we have been making meat is incredibly antiquated. So for 12,000 years, we have been growing crops to feed them to animals so that we can eat animals. And the most efficient animal at turning crops into meat is the chicken. It takes nine calories fed to a chicken to get one calorie back out in the form of chicken meat. And that is just incredibly inefficient. For feedlot beef, it's 40 calories in to get one calorie back out in the form of beef. That means nine to 40 times as much land, nine to 40 times as much fertilizer and pesticides and herbicides and water and everything else. Um, it's just silly that we've been doing it this way for 12,000 years. So um, scientists have, have realized that you can take sesame seed size biopsy from an animal. You can feed that animal you know, nutrients uh, and the cells will multiply and grow. So right now, you feed the animal massive numbers you know, of calories in the form of soy or oats or wheat or whatever else, and the cells multiply and grow. Um, here, it's very much like taking a seed or a cutting from a plant, bathing that seed or cutting in nutrients. It grows into a plant, uh, but here it's animal cells that grow into animal meat. Far more efficient, far less resource intensive, no drugs required, um, and just a better way 
um, of making meat. I do want to back up just one second and say your plant-based meat experience. I mean, that was the theory of plant-based meat um, up until maybe eight or 10 years ago. Uh, take the waste product of the soy oil industry or the waste product um, of the wheat industry for pasta and bread. So take the protein, cram it together, and force people like you to eat it um, <laughs> and appreciate it. Um, and there are people now um, sort of pioneered by Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods who are saying, look, meat is made up of lipids, aminos, minerals, and water. That is all meat is. Plants also have lipids, aminos, minerals, and water. So not super easy, but we can biomimic the entire meat experience. We can do it with plants because it is so much more efficient. We can, do, we can get to a place where the products taste the same or better and cost the same or less. So you have a cell phone in your pocket. It's a phone, even though it doesn't have a cord. It's also a camera, even though it doesn't have analog film. We can make meat from plants. We can cultivate meat directly from cells. It'll be far more efficient and so far more profitable. Uh, just a much better way of, of updating this 12,000-year-old technology. Oh, man. I've got lots of questions. Uh, so I think it's actually great that you sort of divided that into two, the using plants to make a meat-esque formula, if you will, versus growing meat um, in a, what does it grow in? Is it like a Petri dish? Um, well, not at scale. Uh, at scale, it looks basically like a brewery. So it grows in cultivators, which look like fermentation tanks uh, hmm. for beer. Um, so you'll have, you know, 200,000 liter um, cultivators, um, and it'll be growing in cultivators in, in a factory. And because it is so much more, uh, it is so much cleaner it won't require antibiotics. Um, all of the drugs that are fed to animals don't have to be you know, fed to the cells. Uh, it's a more efficient process. It's a cleaner process, has a fraction of the land use, a fraction of the direct emissions. It's a, a market-based solution uh, to climate change, you know, similar to a lot of the stuff that's in the, in the IRA, uh, but would be focused on, on making meat from plants or cultivating meat from cells. Okay, weird question. Can I still get food poisoning from eating undercooked, cultivated hmm. meat? Because one of the real benefits of my black bean burger diet was that you take a thing out of the freezer, you stick it in the microwave, and it doesn't really matter if it even got all the way cooked. You can still eat that. And if you put enough mustard on it, I assure you it is quite edible. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no digestive tract. So there's not going to be any E. coli. Uh, there's not going to, there's going to be, you know, probably no Campylobacter, probably no Listeria, probably no, um, none of the other uh, foodborne pathogens. So uh, just like you can get sick uh, from your black bean burger, uh, but sure. it's a fraction as likely. Exact same thing here. Uh, it's just, uh, and, and in terms of supply chains, like, you know, right now you grow massive amounts of crops and you ship them to the feed mill and you operate the feed mill and you ship the feed to the farm and you operate the farm and you ship the animals to the slaughterhouse and you operate the slaughterhouse. That's where most of the contamination happens. This is just one factory um, which means that it's it also is is a really nice solution to food security issues, um, as well as food systems resilience in terms of much fewer. You know that is a diffuse supply chain. Every link in the supply chain is extremely fragile. Um, so this is a solution to the fragility of the supply chain as well. So I, I when I think of market based solutions to crime, climate change, I at the risk of oversimplification as the technology develops, I think of the Prius phase and the Tesla phase. So in the electric car context, it was like, you should, if you really care about climate change, you should buy a Prius because that's good for the climate, even though you would never buy a Prius. Like if it's your choice, now a few people, but most people 
they're doing it like they're eating their vegetables, right? I'm, I'm eating my vegetables. But then along comes Tesla and people are like, I'm buying that because that's cool. And now you have folks around here where I live in middle Tennessee who love big trucks, who have the Rivian electric, uh, uh, you know, the electric truck on back order because it's just cool. Okay. Yeah. So where are we on the Prius to Tesla spectrum on, on in this process? Well, I will say the fundamental observation of the Good Food Institute and the fundamental um, observation of alternative proteins is that the goal is to erase the green premium. The goal is not individuals buying Priuses or Teslas for that matter. Uh, the goal with renewable energy, it, it's a recognition. Look, the, the amount of energy produced and consumed globally is inexorably going up. Mm -hmm. The number of cars purchased is inexorably going up. The amount of meat eaten, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization says at least 50% more meat by 2050. Some projections are 264% more meat by 20, 2050. We are not going to change that for energy, for vehicles, or for meat. And so the solution of renewable energy and electric vehicles and alternative meats is let's change the product to eliminate the external costs. So like you know, the Good Food Institute is not an organization that's trying to convince anybody to eat anything. The Good Food or, um, Institute, we are a science organization predominantly. Our global battle cry happens in policy. We work with industry, but all of it is focused on transition. And all of it is focused on getting to a place where the products taste the same or better and cost the same or less. And hey, they're also more nutritious. And to Sarah's point, they're far less likely you know, to cause food poisoning. You don't have to operate your kitchen like a biohazard lab. So that's our focus. Um, and I will say with something like the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger, we're getting pretty close to Tesla phase. With cultivated meat, um, once FDA approves it, it's approved in Singapore and other countries, will be immediately at Tesla phase. But what that means is that the products are still more expensive mm. and there's a fair amount of inconvenience um, with Teslas from you know, getting across the country or whatever. Um, our goal is to make the products similarly convenient, equally convenient. So they need to taste the same or better. They need to cost the same or less. And from a tractability standpoint, it should be easier to do this with meat. You don't have the, you know, charging stations. You don't have the like massive land needs for solar, um, or wind energy, et cetera, actually requires a fraction of the land, um, and causes a fraction of the direct emissions. So it's kind of a win-win. We think the tractability on this is extremely high. So I've had the I've I've had the Impossible Burger. Same. That's the one they were doing at Burger King, right? Uh, they still are. Yeah, the Impossible Whopper. But obviously, none of us have had cultivated meat. Can you describe what it tastes like? Compare it to other what it looks things, like. and I, all yes. of that. And so far, most of the Impossible meats are being used for uh, ground meat substitutes, uh, burger, chicken nuggets type idea. Um, that chorizo on your eggs, that type thing. But obviously we're not at a point where someone's substituting their filet. Well, I, I will say it's not a meat substitute. Uh, so like the difference between meat alternative and alternative meat is actually pretty important here. Ooh, um, yes. So just, just like you wouldn't say that this is a phone alternative because it doesn't have a cord and you wouldn't say the camera in your pocket is a camera alternative because it has an analog film. Uh, the point at which you have plant-based meat and a meat eater cannot distinguish it from animal-based meat, or for the you know from the perspective of cultivated meat, it's actually a more pure product. Um, meat is meat is meat, so this is an alternative way of making meat. Just like 
cell phones and digital cameras are alternative ways of creating phones and cameras. Um, and um, yeah, it's going to take longer to get to filet mignon. Um, it's going to take longer to get to pork chops. Um, on the cultivated meat side, they're making crazy fast progress um, on whole cuts. And the trick is going to be getting to cost parity. Mm. Um, and this is where government support comes in, just like the IRA has massive um, support for infrastructure on renewable energy and electric vehicles. We need that kind of support um, to get us sort of over the hump of the CapEx costs and get us to a place where we are at a reasonable scale. And then efficiencies kick in, and this is just a far more efficient way of producing meat. Uh, but governments are not going to meet their Paris Agreement obligations unless meat consumption goes down. We think this is probably the only way that meat consumption goes down. We have been trying to convince people to eat less or no meat for 50 years. Per capita meat consumption, even in the U.S., is as high as it's ever been. Globally, it's going up. Um, just like energy consumption and driving go up on the basis of economic growth, so too meat consumption. So we need to figure out how to make meat better and differently. Um, this is that, we think. So I'm at a, let's say I'm at, there's a great steakhouse here in Franklin, Tennessee called Sperry's. So I'm at Sperry's and I order a filet and Sperry's is using, you know, and it's again, not, it's meat. It's not meat substitute. It's meat. An order a filet. Do I get something is the ultimate idea that I would get something that when I see it on the plate, it is the same. Indistinguishable. Indistinguishable. Okay. Yeah, whether it's plant-based or cultivated, it would be indistinguishable. Um, and our hypothesis, you know, working with the ADMs and the Nestle's and the JBS, Tyson Cargill's, you know, top two food companies, top three meat companies there, all of them are launching their own plant-based lines. All of them are invested in cultivated meat. And our pitch to them is don't be Kodak, be Canon. <laughs> this is a 12,000-year-old technology it is yours to lose mm -hmm. right now, folks. So sort of like GM, they introduced the first electric vehicle in 1996. They end up crushing them. Tesla comes along, and now GM's saying all of our cars are going to be electric by 2035. GM could have owned that space. They let Tesla have it. Um, our pitch to, to the really big food and meat companies is go all in on this. Um, and so far, they, they seem to be listening. I mean, it's, it's early days, but we're, we're cautiously optimistic. And, you know, the, the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, they released a report last November. They said alternative meats, plant-based and cultivated meat, are going to add 9.8 million jobs to the global economy by 2050 um, and $1.1 trillion in gross value add. And that's why this is so bipartisan. This is something, it is a market-based solution. Um, it is America's to lose at this point. We see countries like Israel and Singapore going all in based on food security. We see company, countries like the Netherlands and Denmark going all in on the basis of um, the environment. China, in their five-year plan for the bioeconomy and their five-year ag plan, and President Xi himself all this year have been talking about alternative proteins. So that's why somebody like Sonny Perdue, uh, Donald Trump's Secretary of Agriculture, is saying the U.S. needs to go all in on this. We have the top country companies globally. Uh, let's not lose our edge. Yeah. So why can't I go out right now and get cultivated meat? What are the barriers? Why can I? Why do I have to fly to Singapore if I want to try this? Because I really, really want to try it. I also well, want to fly to pretty, Singapore. Pretty nice. Cool. But anyway, I know exactly. <laughs> I, I do too. Um, I think we're going to see it in additional countries this year. So um, according to the companies that are doing cultivated meat, um, and a lot of companies are producing it in, in sort of um, 
in beta beta testing batches. Um, I think we're going to see more and more. We'll, we'll probably see cultivated meat um, on sale at very high price points initially in the United States uh, by the end of the year. Is the Whoa. expectation of, is the expectation of multiple companies. So um, we saw the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger both launched at the end of 2016. Um, they're still at pretty high price points, both of those products. Um, and I think we're going to see something similar, even higher price points on cultivated meat. Um, but they're not going to be able to keep it on shelves. Like in, in Singapore, they don't have enough to supply the demand. I think we're going to see that with cultivated meat in the U.S. Um, and I suspect we'll see it see it approved in additional countries in, in the not too distant future as well. The U.K. in their, in their scientific sort of Brexit-inspired strategy document was talking about plant-based and cultivated meat. Um, and the fact that the UK's regulatory regime um, is more tech accepting than the EU. Uh, they're actually talking about the UK's competitive advantage on the basis of Brexit. Um, and I, th- I wouldn't be surprised if we see the UK uh, rolling out the regulatory red carpet here as well. So let's suppose um, you're talking to a focus group about cultivated meat. So a focus group of average Americans. What are the objections that you're hearing? What what are what are the barriers? So I'm some people have varying degrees of of concern about climate change. I think probably some people have varying degrees of concern about animal welfare, for example. So what what draws people to it? If you're talking to an average uh, cross section of Americans, and what is what makes people suspicious? Well, what draws people to it? I mean, it, it's interesting. The early polling on cultivated meat is shockingly good for something that is so thoroughly new and different from something that anybody's used to. So again, 12,000 years, we have been growing crops to feed them to animals so that we can eat animals. Our bodies are biologically programmed to be afraid of new foods for all the obvious reasons that we would be afraid of new foods. Um, And yet the percentages of people who are enthusiastic about eating cultivated meat um, are somewhere on the order of of anywhere from fifty to seventy percent, depending on you know what you call it um, and various other ways that the questions are framed. Um, and I think that's because people eat meat today, despite how it's produced, rather than because of how it's produced. Um, and when you ask people who have said no, they don't want to eat cultivated meat or try it. You ask them why, and they say things like, "I don't think it's going to taste as good." or I think it's going to be too expensive. And that's why our single-minded focus is let's you know, figure out how we get it to a plate. Let's eliminate what Bill Gates calls the green premium. Uh, the green premium is, is the, you know, what you pay extra to have a Tesla uh, instead of a, a combustion engine car. Let's eliminate that and make it cost competitive. And then I think we see people, you know, this was what Sarah was talking about at the outset. Uh, at her heart, she's a vegetarian. I think a lot of people in their hearts would prefer to eat less meat um, or no meat. Oftentimes that has to do with qualms about the climate or animal protection or other uh, impacts of the way that meat is produced today. So um, I do think once we have the products, the products are on the market. Just footnote, by the way, mine is a combination of laziness and taste. I actually don't like the taste of oh. most meat and I am incredibly lazy. So that's why I asked about the foodborne illness because you have to like cook meat. So I'm looking for something that <laughs> takes the least amount of time from when my brain says I'm hungry to eating and uh, and I really like the taste of tofu more than a lot of meat. 
All right. Well, I mean, we do hear we do hear from. I mean, uh, you know, that that's an inter- interesting twist on David's question because we do hear from vegetarians and vegans who are like, "I hate the Impossible Burger. Huh. Um, it tastes too much like meat." Interesting. I was going to ask the philosophical question: If you're a vegetarian or vegan, can you eat cultivated meat? I mean, I guess it depends on what. No, I mean, just like you know, if you are, uh, I don't, I don't know, you know, if you are one thing, can you be another, you know, the opposite of that? No. Um, but, um, but I think most people, so if you're a vegetarian and, you know, and you have like just sort of aversion to the taste of meat and maybe people who have been vegetarian or vegan for a whole bunch of years do have an aversion to the taste of meat and they don't want to eat the impossible burger and they don't want to eat, you know, cultivated meat. And, you know, at GFI, we say both seriously and somewhat facetiously, if you're a vegetarian, we don't care Mm -hmm. what you eat. (laughs) Right. Um, <laughs> you, you keep know. doing you like, whatever. yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. And, um, so with plant-based, I mean, with cultivated meat, I mean, even plant-based meat, I mean, our hypothesis is it's meat. It's just a different way of producing meat. So I would say, no, if you're a vegetarian, by definition, you don't eat meat. So go be happy with your, your tofu and your tempeh. But is it, it is interesting that the number, like the top reasons people don't want to eat cultivated meat, um, our expense, um, and fair enough, right? Like, um, we really do need to win on price for this to become mainstream. It's going to stay niche Mm -hmm. as long as people have to pay more for it. And then we really do have to win on taste. Like it needs to, it needs to be indistinguishable. And then for people like Sarah, who like, don't like the, the taste so they can go with tofu or tempeh or beans and rice or whatever else. But, um, those are the principal objections. There are people who object to the idea of bringing technology into food, um, and that's just sort of a, a visceral objection that you can usually get over uh, by having, you know, the conversation that we had at the outset um, about the fact that this is a very. There's a lot of technology in our current meat production. Well, that's amount. true, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if people are if people are concerned about naturalness, you know, point them to the uh, the column from Nicholas Kristof where he talks about Prozac. Uh, you know, there's a JHU study where they found uh, drugs in 100 percent of the chicken samples, including Benadryl and Prozac and other stuff. Um, so yeah, if, if naturalness is a concern, but there, you know, there is a, a sort of a visceral concern, um, about doing things in new ways. So, um, in sort of consumer adoption studies, there are the, you know, there are sort of the resistors, there's the last one to adopt some new way of doing something, you know, the people who are, uh, refusing to do email, um, or whatever else. But, um, you know, I, th- I think we get, I think over time, assuming we can get to taste the same or better and cost the same or less, which is you know, never happened so far, but it's also never happened with uh, electric vehicles. Um, I think we can get there. Um, it's going to take some effort, but I think it's I think it's more tractable than electric vehicles. It's also a lot more impactful than electric vehicles. The Boston Consulting Group released a report. They said just getting to 11% alternative proteins would have the same uh, CO2 impact, the same climate change impact um, as eliminating uh, the airline industries contribution Goodness. to climate change. And that's just at 11%. Plant-based milk is already at 16%. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, even getting to, even getting to 16% pays massive biodiversity and climate impact advantages. Um, and we haven't even talked about things like antimicrobial resistance and pandemic risk. It pays massive dividends on those things too. And by the way, to your point, people like the taste of those alternative milks. They like yeah. almond milk and oat milk, milk and it has a, just a different yeah. flavor. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly right. So they 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 are they are taking seriously the idea of taste the same or better and cost the same or less. Yeah. And, and we need to take that seriously on alternative meats as well. So this might seem like a strange question, but have you had any resistance from the environmentalist side 
of the climate change equation. In other words, you know, there's it's a diverse movement with lots of different ideas about how to combat climate change. You know, from somebody where I'm sitting on the the uh, right side of the political spectrum, I've always been puzzled by the ferocity of the opposition to nuclear power, for example, as a step towards, you know, uh, uh, net zero emissions. Do you encounter any resistance from the environmentalist side of this? And, and if so, what is it and why? No. Um, I mean, we are, um, because, you know, you look at the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, um, and it says two things that are critically important for the conversation that we're having. Um, the first is that meat consumption needs to go down, um, certainly to meet 1.5, um, the Paris goal of keeping climate change below 1.5 degrees relative to pre-industrial levels, um, probably to meet 2.0. Um, and all of the stuff that's discussed in food and agriculture, um, other than you know convincing people to change their diets, which I think is is critically important, and we're enthusiastic about that, but is unlikely to work on a grand scale. It's unlikely to change their trajectory. It hasn't so far, and um, isn't likely to start working now. Um, however important and laudable it is, uh, but in terms of actually getting to a reality in 2050, other than 50 to almost 300 percent more meat production as now, um, alternative proteins are probably our most tractable way to get there. Um, and that's critically important. And the IPCC says that needs to happen. Um, and then they also say naturally occurring sequestration needs to happen. Um, and right now, uh, three out of 4 billion hectares of land that's used for agriculture are used either to grow crops to feed chickens and pigs um, or to graze ruminants. So that's the size of China plus India times two plus Indonesia. Mm. If we have to use twice that much land by 2050, that is going to make it very, very difficult to get any natural sequestration. So the fact that something like plant-based or cultivated meat requires a 20th of the land um, of the current production methods means a lot of land can be freed up for that naturally occurring sequestration that the IPCC considers to be so important. So from our perspective, the entire environmental community should be going full bore in favor of alternative proteins. Um, and that is starting to happen. Well, I don't know if you can start to have full bore in favor of something like that's <laughs> you know, where they full should be. Full bore has got to start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we're, we're, we're moving in that direction. Uh, but from our perspective, it is not happening nearly as quickly um, as we feel like it should be happening. So um, we're getting a lot, we're getting a fair amount of enthusiasm. And, and I think the issue with sort of the environmental community is they are working so hard um, on renewable energy and electric vehicles in particular. Um, and nobody was sitting around saying, gosh, what else should we be putting massive right. amounts of resources in? They don't have the massive amounts of spare resources. So um, we're starting to see folks go in this direction. Um, we think it should be a lot more and a lot more quickly. Um, we're optimistic that we are that we are going to get there. When I was like in my 20s, my mother used to say she wished that someone would invent a pill with all the nutrients you need so you could just pop that pill instead of having to eat food, that she felt like the, the consuming of food was a waste of her time. And I scoffed at her and was like, that's ridiculous. Eating food is like the highlight of my day. And on the campaign trail, one of the pieces of advice I give campaign operatives, baby campaign operatives, is that... <laughs> You should think of your candidate like one of those 
pigs running the race where they dangle the Oreo in front of the pig to get the pig to keep running. Like that's what you should be doing with the next meal your candidate gets to eat. Don't forget after this town hall, we get to go to Panera. Um, It may not be mush, but it'll get them through that next couple hours. But as I've gotten older, as I am not on the campaign trail, I actually think there should be alternative for some of us that we separate the enjoyment of food and the entertainment value of sitting down to a meal with friends and family or going to a restaurant from the nutritional side of eating. We have an obesity problem. We have a nutritional problem. As you said, we have a food scarcity problem. Why can't we invent a pill (laughs) so that, you know, once a week you'll have friends over for dinner or go out to a nice dinner But for the rest of the week, you don't have to worry about eating and wondering what's in the fridge. And that doesn't taste very good. That went bad. I mean, the food waste in this country is outrageous. And I am constantly stricken with guilt at my own food waste. Because by the way, toddlers just waste an enormous amount of food. I feel like I was pretty efficient before I had a two-year-old who wants five different things prepared. We'll have one bite of one of them. And then I'm left deciding, do I eat all of this? I don't want this. Which is why... I will just say some of the animals that might live in my neighborhood eat a very interesting diet. <laughs> that is uh, that is awesome, Sarah. Um, let me let me just toss out one thing on the sort of food waste um, side of things. So um, obviously it's front page news what the war between Ukraine and Russia is doing to crops. It disrupted 50 million metric tons um, of crops, and that is leading uh, to front page news about impending famine. Um, I'll just note that 20 times that many crops are fed to chickens and pigs and other farm animals. It's literally um, a billion metric tons um, of crops. Before you even get to soy, people will oftentimes justifiably point to soy as part of the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. What they don't note um, is that 78% of that soy is fed to chickens and pigs. And the other reason that we're burning down the Amazon rainforest is to graze ruminants. So it's a big part of biodiversity issues. Um, And there have been pieces in both foreign affairs and um, foreign policy magazines just in like the last three weeks um, calling for alternative government support for alternative proteins from a straight food security vantage, which I think is is pretty important. Um, In response to your specific question, can't we just uh, take a pill and boom, our food uh, needs are over? And we have nutrition. Those are the two problems, right? The, The feeling of hunger that your brain tells you you need to eat and then doesn't have a great turnoff mechanism for that feeling, by the way. And actually getting the nutrition we need for our bodies to run, which is so much less than we're actually consuming, even without obesity, I mean. Like, we just eat more than we need, and our bodies are processing it, you know, fine, but we don't need it. I mean, one of the great things about plant-based meat um, is that it helps, um, like all, you know, just like eating plants generally, it it helps with uh, food intake regulation. It has some fiber. um, It has complex carbohydrates. It has less fat, including less saturated fat. It has no cholesterol. Um, So as we create plant-based meat that is indistinguishable from the perspective of the consumer, um, that should help with the obesity problem. And in fact, um, scientists at at Stanford Medical School, at Stanford Medicine, um, published a report in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition where they fed people, it was a randomized controlled trial, and they fed people um, either beyond meat, um, chicken, pork, and beef, um, or organic chicken, pork, and beef. Um, And in addition to finding that the heart disease risk metrics got better on the plant-based meat diet. They also found that over just eight weeks, uh, people lost a statistically significant amount of weight 
Um, and that was because of the complex carbohydrates, which help you regulate weight in a way that saturated fat and no fiber or complex carbohydrates do not. They do the opposite of that. Um, so plant-based meat is actually partially a solution to what you just identified. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, food is like sex. It's like <laughs> super critically important. It's a part of, you know, what most people think of what, you know, brings joy to life. Um, it's a big part of like socializing and our social lives. Um, you know, the guys at Soylent, uh, probably their hearts were singing when you were, uh, you know, they, they're probably <laughs> calling up your mom right now to, you know, get her, get her on a, a Soylent contract. Um, but for my mom most is on people, a totally raw diet, by the way. So that well, might be why she wants what she a pill. Said. Yeah. She just like, it's her diet is really something. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's hard. That's really hard. Well, in any event, um, I think for most people, like the act of cooking, the act of creating food, you know, the, the, um, Hindu concept of, of prania, um, the love in the food, um, is the most important thing. Like, I think that's, I think that's fairly fundamental to what it means to be human, the socialization around a dinner table. You know, that's, that's another thing that makes it really hard, uh, for people to change their diets to like go vegetarian or vegan. And that's another reason that shifting to plant-based meat and cultivated meat, it doesn't require behavior change, which I think is a critical aspect um, of how, why it's so promising. Hmm. My question is making this very concrete. If you have a hundred thousand acres dedicated to raising cattle, for example, how many acres of crops is necessary to replace the food created by the 100,000 acres worth of grazing land? Is that a kind of is that a kind of equation that you figured out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's an easy one. Uh, the World Resources Institute says that. Um, I mean, I, so for the crops, you need forty calories in to get one calorie back out, um, and then in terms of land use, um, cultivated or plant-based beef requires a fifth the land. Um, so in terms of land, you're talking about 20 times as much. So a hundred thousand acres is 20 times 20, it's 20 million. Is that right? Um, hundred thousand times 10 is a million times two. We're not going to ask you to do off the top of your head, <laughs> but if the answer is a, it's a an whole... alternative calculator or a calculator alternative. <laughs> so the answer is oh, brutal. The, the, the answer is that you to to create the amount of meat output that you have from a hundred thousand acres of grazing land, it's a small fraction out of it if it's cultivated. It's a small fraction of that creates a similar meat. It's a twentieth. A twentieth. Yeah, no, it, it's a it's a twentieth. So it, it requires uh, yeah, it requires twenty times as much land um, to create uh, beef as opposed to creating plant based or cultivated beef. Okay, so you've made the case that if you care about climate change this could actually have a larger impact than a lot of other things that people are doing in their day-to-day -day lives, certainly, but even at sort of a governmental level. Uh, if you care about animal welfare, it's kind of obvious. If you care about taste and price, you're working on it. But there's another big one here that people don't think about, and that's if you care about global public health crises and especially antibiotic issues, which I have read some fantastic books, uh, The Devil Under the Microscope, The History of Sulfa Antibiotics. There are some, um, it's, it's fascinating to see how we got antibiotics. And certainly I think if you look at the population increase, a large chunk of our population increasing is because we discovered antibiotics. 
And I often ask people, because I'm really fun at parties, as all of our listeners know, at what age would you have died without antibiotics? <laughs> it's really fun. Like, where, when would you have died 200 years ago, basically? What catastrophic thing has happened to you in your life that you probably wouldn't have survived from? Like which people splinter. can't. Yeah, I mean, people can't totally know that. Like, um, you know, obviously one president's son died from tripping on a tennis court and he got staff in the little cut that he got. Okay, so there's a huge problem with our meat production in this country because of the antibiotic resistance that's being built up. And if we lose antibiotics, there we don't have an alternative right now. Scientists aren't like, well, we're working on, nope. We basically have seven antibiotics in the world um, to our intravenous only, we're in trouble here. Yeah, I mean, 70% of antibiotics produced globally by the pharmaceutical industry are fed to farm animals, and it is contributing to antibiotic resistance. The UK government has said the threat to the human race from antibiotic resistance is more certain than the threat from climate change. So further to your point, Sarah, if people want to scare, Google the end of working antibiotics. Right. Uh, you want to ramp up that scare, add the word China to that Google search. One of the things that will pop up is an article in the New York Times called Pig Zero. Um, and this makes intuitive sense once you explain it. So if you get sick and need antibiotics, um, you might go on a course of antibiotics that lasts 10 days. Farm animals are fed antibiotics for their entire lives, uh, which is why you end up with 70% of medically relevant antibiotics fed to farm animals. It's contributing to antibiotic resistance. The former head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Margaret Chan, um, she says the end of working antibiotics is the end of modern medicine. Mm. So that's a really big plus factor for plant-based meat and cultivated meat. Think about surgeries. You can't do surgeries without working antibiotics. Even really basic, basic surgeries, you're required. They give you antibiotics either beforehand or during. You may not even know that you were given antibiotics. I'm allergic to Bactrim, a sulfa antibiotic. So this has become really relevant in my life because... I uh, can only take a few different types of antibiotics. And the, uh, the answer is to like when you would die without antibiotics will be shockingly young for most people. Yeah. And, and I mean, another issue that we haven't talked about, but just to very briefly touch on it is naturally occurring pandemic risk. So the UN Environment Program in July of 2020, people can look this up. It's called uh, Preventing the Next Pandemic, was 13 of the world's leading pandemic researchers they list the seven most likely causes of the next pandemic. The first one is increased meat consumption because you know, tens of billions of animals now, 50 to 300% of that number of animals by 2050 means that many more additional vectors uh, for the next you know, COVID-23 or whatever. Um, the second one is the industrial farming of animals because we have these genetic clone animals, which means that their, their uh, immune systems are depressed. And then we cram 50,000 chickens in a shed or hundreds of thousands of chickens in a shed if you're talking about egg production, which depresses their immune systems further. So number one um, is increased number of animals slaughtered. Number two is the way that they're treated and the fact that they're genetic clone animals. Number seven is climate change. Um, and COVID-19, like we all you know, are sort of you know, living through the end of it now, it wasn't particularly deadly. It wasn't particularly transmissible it still sent more than 100 million people in the global South into extreme poverty. It set back poverty elimination um, efforts probably a decade or more. Um, and that's true of the, this thing we just talked about, about antibiotic resistance. It's true about um, biodiversity loss. It's true about climate change. 
the people globally who are most adversely impacted by all of these harms are the people who can least adapt. So, I mean, to Sarah's point, the end of working antibiotics, it's going to be bad for all of your listeners. It's going to be really life and death for people in developing economies. Similarly, pandemic, you know, COVID-19 um, was pretty, you know, uncomfortable. It was especially bad for, you know, kids in developed economies. Um, it is life and death for hundreds of millions of people in developing economies. Um, and all of this is linked to this 12,000-year-old uh, way that we have of, of producing meat. We know, now know how to do it better. Um, the U.S. is right now in the lead in moving in this direction. Um, and we need to, to accelerate the pace. And on that cheery note, but seriously, it actually is because there are things that you are doing right now to help in all of these categories. And I am blessed enough to have the resources that the second that cultivated meat comes here, I will be price, uh, what's the, not price in elastic. Yes, <laughs> I will be price inelastic. I will buy it wherever it is. Um, I have not bought the $20 strawberries yet because strawberries are not as meaningful to me. But I had a friend who just tried them and said that they really are incredible strawberries if you are truly inelastic about your food choices. They, they, better, they better be at that yeah, cost. At that price. But I'm, <laughs> I'm with you, Sarah. I'm going, I'm, I'm going to absolutely be happy to try this. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. We're your demand, Bruce. All right, I'm excited. Just give us the supply. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, but thank you, Bruce. <laughs> this has been this has been a treat. I I love it when I sit here and I just learn, and I've just learned a ton from from listening to you, and it's absolutely fascinating. So, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely, my pleasure. And check out the Good Food Institute. We'll put the TED Talk in the link if you want the four minute version of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, people who want to learn more, gfi.org. Uh, we have a whole bunch of newsletters at gfi.org slash newsletters. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization. Actually, we're a network of nonprofit organizations. So we exist in the U.S., but we also have affiliates in uh, India, Israel, Brazil, Asia Pacific, uh, and Europe, um, and gfi.org to find out more. But what about Canada? We do have a weird number of Canadian listeners, I have to say. Uh, the, U the U.S. covers Canada, although oh. I, I will say that— uh, That's going to annoy say them. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. We're looking at it. But Canada's doing a lot of really good stuff. Um, and uh, Canadian, Canadian peas is, uh, is what goes into the, into the Beyond Burger. It's uh, Iowa soy into the Impossible Burger and Canadian peas into the Beyond Burger. So hmm. there you Ooh, go. That is a fun fact. That is interesting. All right. Bruce Friedrich, everyone. Thank you Look so it much. All up. Thanks so much. So Sarah, that was really fascinating. Like that, that was really fascinating. And I'll tell you what I really liked about it is I like, there's a, a sort of a, a part of the environmentalist movement that if you're going to say, well, what, what kind of brand of environmentalism have you, it's most compelling to you, David, I would say it's a brand called Echo Modernism. And so what Echo Modernism is, is essentially saying that, look, Environmentalism can't work unless it really is dedicated to the thriving of human beings as well as the planet, as well as sort of, you know, the trees and the animals and all of that. And so eco-modernism really takes a hard look at how do we help people thrive and how do we use technology to address the challenges of climate change. And this seems to be like right in that. It is hey, look, we're not going to sit there and wag our finger at people until they stop eating meat. 
It's saying, wait, we, we're smart people. We know what meat is made of. We can make meat and we can help people thrive and not just thrive in the sense of healthy, but thrive in the sense of joy, the joy that people have in eating and also do some real good to preserve this planet that we're on. And I just like that whole combination, the flourishing of people and the flourishing of the planet and the use of human ingenuity to accomplish both. I I just like it. I just like it. One of the first things I ever heard Bruce say was, we're not trying to convince people not to eat meat. Right. And I think that if you start from that position, you're not trying to convince people of anything. Right. You're trying to provide options that, as he said, are going to taste as good or better, be uh, the same price or cheaper. I mean, at the point that it's going to taste amazing, it'll last way longer in your fridge and it's cheaper. People are going to make that choice. Maybe not 100% of the time. I don't think we're going to have all vegetarians. But as he said, if you get an 11%, you know, if one out of 10 days that you were going to eat that burger and said, you're like, oh yeah, this has been in the fridge and like all of our meat's gone bad, then that in and of itself is going to have all of these, this great ripple effect. And I think that's a, a very cool way to approach these kind of problems, like you said. Right, right. I mean, I'm more committed to the taste and nutritional value of meat than I am to the killing of the cow. <laughs> and so if you can have the taste and the nutritional value of meat. <laughs> you don't require the, kill- the dead cow. <laughs> I, I do not. It's like, did somebody shoot a cow for this? No, I don't. <laughs> so, but anyway, I just thought that he he was a great guest. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. And it's it is fun to talk to people who are hyper knowledgeable and passionate about a topic. That that's a that's a fun conversation. Yeah, and that's what our August is about. It's about experts in something that you and I know nothing about. But in the, to be fair, in the previous week, I did know a lot about the oh Battle of Helm's Deep. Oh my god. Yeah. No, you didn't. <laughs> so not compared just, to just Brett. To, not to well, okay, true, true. Not compared to Brett. But well, that was fantastic. Thanks, Sarah, for inviting him. That was that was great. Really enjoyed it. I hope you guys did too. Uh, if you did, please go rate us. Uh, please subscribe. Uh, please check out our work at thedispatch.com, and we'll be back next week. Yeah.